0: Dot com slash lincoln odoo modern management made simple hey everyone it's reed before we get started i just want to ask you to go to jointheunion.us heed our words heed the words of president biden get involved in saving american democracy this fall by getting involved in your states and your
1: communities to ensure that pro-democracy candidates win go to jointheunion.us and join the fight and now on with the show Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host,
0: Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Michael Steele, former Lieutenant Governor of Maryland, former chairman of the Republican National Committee, host of The Michael Steele Podcast, available wherever fine podcasts are found, and a political analyst for MSNBC. Michael. Welcome to the show.
2: Hey, Reed. It's always a pleasure to be in your neighborhood, brother.
0: No, and you were a couple of weeks ago and we got to sit in Salt Lake City and have a cup of coffee. And as I said then, I wish I'd just brought my tape recorder with me and we just saved ourselves some trouble, but I'm glad to have you. So Michael, there's a lot going on, but given your electoral position as Lieutenant Governor of Maryland and then subsequently as Chairman of the Republican National Committee. I think a lot of the listeners have probably seen you on MSNBC, have probably heard you on your podcast and other podcasts. But how did you become a Republican in the first place?
2: My mama raised me well.
0: <laughs> I'm sure she did that. There's no question about it.
2: And that's saying, a lot, because my mama was a Roosevelt Democrat, she still is to this day at 95 years old. But a big part of it was that aspect of what Republicans used to articulate about individual rights and freedoms, a respect for the rule of law, certainly a very difficult message for a young Black mother to deliver to her Black son growing up in a segregated nation's capital, which Washington was at the time I was growing up, to inspire in him a belief that all of this is for me too despite all the difficulties, all of the trials and tribulations she had gone through, my mother always kind of talked about the fact that you're going to go out and make your own way. And as serendipity, luck, irony, whatever it is, when Ronald Reagan ran his campaign in 76, and certainly in 80, but absolutely in 76, because that was the first election I could vote in, he resonated with me. He sounded a lot like my mom about the things my mom would teach me about being an American citizen in a country that may not always welcome you, but the promise is still there for you to take. And this idea, in watching him go down to defeat in 76, the way he talked about the country and his beliefs. It just resonated. It made a lot of sense. And yeah, a lot of people want to pick at, you know, how he started his 1980 campaign in Mississippi, sort of dog whistling to white segregationists. But that did not eclipse for me the underlying message very much in line with our founders that this country is mine too. And I get a chance just like you did, just as your kids do today, just as my sons do today, to take advantage of that. To lean into that opportunity, into that chance, despite the obstacles we may overcome. So that's really kind of the origin story. You know, my mom always told me, don't be a Democrat because I'm a Democrat. Of course, when I came and told her I registered as a Republican in 76, she looked at me and said, Why the hell would you do that? (laughs) Um, But I grew up in a Democratic household. I had an aunt, one aunt in the family who was Republican. Nobody talked to her too much, but, you know, I knew she was there. But yeah, all those little elements. You know, were part of my narrative, just as they were a lot of other people. But the backstory was even a little bit more enhanced for me, Reed, because of where I grew up, how I was viewed, my mama was viewed, my community was viewed largely by the people around us and still believed in this country. Let's fast forward.
0: So you go on to a successful career in Republican politics as, you know, lieutenant governor, a Republican lieutenant governor of a blue, if not the bluest state. (laughs) Right. Maryland, you know, maybe some of its Western approaches and, you know, its most eastern areas get pretty red in a hurry. But for the most part, Baltimore City, Baltimore County, Montgomery County, very blue areas. Then you go on to be chairman of the Republican National Committee. Now, it's what been 10 years since you left office. Right. Right. And that's been a hell of a 10 years for the country and for the Republican Party. But from your perspective, what's the last decade looked like?
2: A hellish landscape where, you know, it's one thing when something natural happens and sort of blows up the landscape. A meteor comes from the sky or horrific storm, and it transforms the natural landscape. It's another when you're watching people do it day in and day out literally and deliberately blowing it up and reshaping it into something that is wholly unrecognizable. So for me, starting in 2012, watching the Republican Party slip, slide, and push itself to where it is now has been very disappointing. Look, I got the politics of why they wanted to get rid of me because at the end of the day, and I always knew this, because I didn't grow up in the system, number one. I was not a young Republican, a college Republican. I didn't tout Amen you know, to Jesus. GOP on my sleeves and, you know, did all that <laughs> stuff. I grew up in D.C. My political mentors were Joe Dell, one of the first African-American city council members appointed by Lyndon Johnson, Marion Barry, the first elected Black mayor of Washington, Mayor Washington, the first appointed mayor of Washington. So I had a very different landscape in which my Republican bona fides were developed and put into place. So my style of politics I knew would never really fit with these guys. And I'd always warn them, I'd say, y'all know (laughs) what you're going to get with me. I'm going to be direct, I'm going to be honest. It, It worked for them for as long as it worked for them. They liked it when you know, I was putting money in the States. They liked it when we were winning races that everyone didn't believe we could win. But at the end of the day, what I saw was a restlessness that I could not ultimately overcome. It was a restlessness with the condition of America and the fear that a growing number of white people had about the changing of America. They hate it when I would go out and start talking about hip-hop republicanism or what it's like to be a black man in the country. And I was like, no, that's a good thing. That's one thing re- Republicans embraced, going back to the whole reason we had a civil war. You're upset that you now have the first black chairman talk about being an African-American in the party and in the country. And that's you know how we can make that a good thing. But just watching this sort of slow roll to where we are right now was very frustrating and very aggravating. And particularly given the fact that so many men, men primarily with titles, did very little to stop it. In fact, did everything they could to accelerate it. It's interesting. And let me
0: ask you this as someone who spent far more of my childhood in the 310 First Street Southeast building, the Dwight Eisenhower Republican Center, where the NRCC, which is the Republican Congressional Committee, is housed as well as the Republican National Committee. I lived on the second floor. Michael was up on the vaunted fourth floor, which I rarely got to go to. (laughs) I remember a former colleague of mine from many years ago, Michael, was adopted as a baby from Korea and had grown up in New England. And after one of the presidential campaigns was asked, we want you to come be our Asian outreach lead. And this person said, I grew up with a white Catholic family in New England. I literally know nothing about how to communicate to the Asian community other than because of the way I look. And this was someone who I think like you really believed in Republican values. I think we're both old enough to remember when you could be a Republican or you could be a conservative or you could be a conservative Republican and they didn't necessarily have to go together. But I'm just going to ask it flat out. Like, did you sense that while you were sitting in the chair?
2: Oh my gosh, yes. Oh man, there were many times when I would look at people in the boardroom, you know, we'd have staff meetings and I'd just look around and say, y'all know I'm black, right? Cause y'all putting shit in front of me that don't make no sense. I can't go out and say this. And so one of the things that I think folks began to realize very quickly was, well, he dresses like a Republican and he sounds like a Republican but why isn't he saying the things that Republicans are saying? By sound means, I love this, you're so articulate, okay? You're so articulate, yes, yes. I love it when black people are articulate, right? But yeah, I got a lot of that. I got a lot of Pied Piperism, which was, well, now that we have a black chairman, black people are gonna wanna be a Republican. I'm like, really, how does that work? You have to still do the work, as I told the party, We still have to go out into the community. So, for example, one of my first official trips after my election was to, guess where? Harlem for a town hall meeting. Why, as one member said, would I want to do that? Well, guess what? That's where the voters are. You want their vote, right? We got to go get it. We got to go work it. And that was something that my predecessors, both Ken Melman and... um, Roscoe? Oh, Roscoe absolutely got it and understood it. In fact, ran into some issues when he was chairman to try to really kind of reshape that landscape. Oh, and I guess Mike Duncan was there too, right? Yeah, Mike Duncan was chairman before me. But Governor Roscoe, absolutely. Ken Melman, absolutely. Ed Gillespie. Those men, they understood that in the seat, they could do more with it to begin to create those lanes for the party to advance our values and articulate our policy views, et cetera. And so Ken Melman, for example, went before the NAACP and effectively apologized for the Republican party walking away from civil rights in the 1960s. I went to before the NAAC and declared, we're no longer doing the Southern strategy is dead. And that our walk with the black community is going to be as partners and as longtime friends because we have been both partners and friends from the very beginning. So it was a reestablishment, a reemphasis of that. Reince comes in and throws all that out. And then after the debacle in 2012, I think he gave some interview and said, yeah, I guess I kind of should have kept probably the stuff that Michael did. But Reince was the father,
0: though, right? Reince Priebus former chairman of the Republican National Committee, subsequently chief of staff at the White House to Donald Trump, subsequent to that, literally fired by tweet and left on a tarmac. I don't even know where. So, you know, sometimes karma catches up with you, Michael. It It does. But he commissions the Growth and Opportunity Project out of the GOP, specifically, as you noted, to find ways for the Republican Party in 2013, now nine years ago, almost 10 years ago, To find ways into communities of color, Latino, African-American, Asian, whoever it was, because maybe the people who worked on their report understood that in a lot of ways, demographics is destiny, that the country was changing even then, is changing now even faster. But two years later, the orange band comes down the escalator.
2: And it jettisoned the whole thing. And I knew all of that was a load of crap. First off, I never would have spent a million dollars to do what I knew instinctively had to be done, particularly given that I put in place a vast national network without spending a million dollars, without having to call it an autopsy, for God's sake, of all the names you can give something, and certainly didn't waste ink and paper on it. It was much more grassroots oriented. It was much more tied to the state parties because folks need to understand the RNC is just like, it's like a cloud. It's just this it's thing that's up in the air and it, sometimes it rains on you and then sometimes you get sunshine. But at the end of the day, the earth is where the action is. That's where the state party organizations are. The 50 state parties and the territories where we have state organizations, that's the action. So put the emphasis and the focus there as the country demographically changes, you can change with it because you're there, you're touching these people every day, you're embracing their culture, you're embracing their lifestyles, you're embracing their choices, how they want to live and govern themselves. And so then our goal is to take that and wrap it around the philosophy of what it means to be a Republican, not so much a conservative, because as you rightly pointed out, you can be a conservative and not be a Republican. You can be a Republican and not be a conservative. Republicanism is an idea. It is a set of values. It's a set of principles about how you look at the role of government relative to the people, how you look at opportunities that people have to create lasting and you know, wealth for their families and their communities. So it's a very different approach. So when the party moved off of that track, We should have known it would culminate eventually in the party not even have a platform because it jettisoned some of the underpinnings of that when it threw out the whole autopsy. It was like, okay, Trump can come down and say that Mexicans are murderers and rapists and bad people, even though we have a document here that says we want to have a relationship with you. (laughs) You see where it's going. And for me, it has been a somewhat painful journey because. Like anything, there's a side of your brain where you go, damn, you, how do you not appreciate the effort of so many people to try to grow and actualize our beliefs among the population? How do you not see that? And why does that have such little value for you? And it's frustrating, it's hard, but those choices have been made, uh, that path has been chartered, um, it doesn't end well. And I think for a lot of us, you know, I'm still a Republican, I'm there because I know it pisses them off that I'm still there. <laughs> the easiest thing to do is to leave. But as I said, when I go, baby. Right. Watch <laughs> oh, out. baby, when I go, <laughs> I'm taking all you mofos with me. Well, amen to that.
0: <laughs> Let me ask about this. When you saw so many people that you knew that worked for you, that worked with you, start to cross the river to Trump and Trumpism, I certainly did not expect. Donald Trump was going to win in 2016. He did, and always amazed at the speed with which people line up behind the power, not surprisingly, the opportunity, not surprisingly, but so willing to do it, and then not long after, so willing to make excuses for it. So were you surprised by that?
2: With some people, yes. Overall, no, because that's the nature of people. So a couple of things. One, I knew Donald Trump was going to win in about this time in 2016. How did I know? Well, I watched a couple of focus groups and one in which a white female from New Hampshire, mother of two, divorced. When asked about Donald Trump and why she supported him, said, he's just like me. She was not popping up in any polling that we were seeing because no one's polling her. No one's polling the Trump voter. And the Trump voter had largely learned by watching the reaction to Trump at that point in time, just to keep their mouth shut. Keep your head down, go vote. So there was that. The other piece of it was what was surprising was to watch some people literally throw their belief system. I could get trash in your career. I don't know how you trash what you believe. Maybe that says you never believed it in the first place. Maybe that just means you were full of crap from the beginning. And so it's been very much a learning lesson to watch some of these people do what they've done the way they've done it, all to claim that they got to touch the hem of his robe. What I tell him, I said, well, you, you know that robe is made out of shit, right? It's something that you actually want to wear. It's something you want to embrace because it's an amalgam of bad stuff. No, as the infamous
0: Rick Wilson once said, everything Trump touches dies.
2: Everything he touches dies. And what Rick Apley touched on was not just institutions and programs and policies, but people too. And you watch the careers of individuals just get ripped to shreds. And even in the midst of that, you think to yourselves, you're going to keep your dignity intact. At some point, you're just going to say no. So when I hear people say, "Trump is bad, I can't deal with Trump, you know, I'm done with him, but if he's a nominee, will you vote for him? Yeah, I'll vote for him again. Well, okay, then you're not done with him. You're now in an abusive relationship in which you relish like the abuse you're getting, because you know cognitively that this is a bad person, and yet I know now you didn't believe that and that the things that you say you believe no longer matter to you because you're willing to stick around. I want to go back to something that you
0: said about in 2016, the Trump voter and how we weren't polling them. Because if there's a description of how I feel about the coming election, Michael, it's unease. And it's specifically because of the woman you're talking about. And I use Pennsylvania. As an example, and I might have brought this up when we saw each other last, which was you go to the Republican Senate primary there. You had Dr. Oz, who got 33.1%, all because of Trump. Dave McCormick, hedge fund guy, former DC guy, wife is powerful at Goldman Sachs, you know, worked for a couple of Republican administrations. He's your sort of rump. He's the otherwise normal, such as it is, Republican. Then you get Kathy Barnett, and Kathy Barnett. Does not run a campaign, does not have any money, doesn't do anything, shows up for a couple of debates. And like two weeks out, Michael, she's in the lead or about to be there and they have to dump everything they can, Oz, McCormick, Fox, Trump, everybody to knock her back down. And she still gets 27 percent. But where the hell do those people come from? Because they didn't appear anywhere. And those are the folks that concern me, Michael, because we can't see them. With even modern-day Republican
2: radar, we can't find them. They don't appear in any normal way. No, that's exactly right. And it is a big problem because they don't respond to pollsters. They don't put themselves out there. When they are approached, and if you do happen to get one in a focus group, there's no guarantee they're telling you absolutely what they believe and how they feel. They're very suspicious of the process. And so oftentimes we'll lie about it. Uh, No, I'm not voting for Trump. I'm going to vote for whomever, or I'm not going to do this, I'm going to do that. And so it sort of really exposes, I think, the genuine and legitimate concern you have, and all of us should have, about how we approach this coming election. Look, it is not written in stone for the Republicans to have a red wave. It is not written in stone that, The Democrats will lose because the cycle dictates that they should lose, because that's what history said. And the reason is because that voter is out there. And the thing about it is that voter exists in both lanes, which is why this is much more interesting now, because when you're looking at enthusiasm among the base vote, Republicans own that for the last nine, 10, 12 months. Now the the landscape has changed considerably. Some would like to point to the Dobbs decision on Roe. Some will point to other things. But I contend that there are other forces at work here that make it harder to really put your finger on how we poll the American population, because they've learned nothing if not how to be cynical in dealing with the media and pollsters.
0: And really... I guess, could we
2: blame them? (laughs) No, we can't. We effectively created them. So that's what made what Trump did in 16 so compelling, was he took a lot of people who had checked out of the political system at the time of Clinton's last election in 96 and brought them back to the table 20 years later in 16. And he did so in a way that was effective because many of those voters were his viewers for the last 14 or 15 years. So they knew the man and they liked his brand. They liked how he made them feel, which is in essence, when she was saying he's just like me, that was her way to say he just makes me feel good about me. I connect with him, I identify with him because he's saying things that I wish I could say to the system. He's doing things I wish I could do to the system. And that's his ongoing appeal, which is why you see all the little monkey types out there trying to mimic him in Florida and in the U.S. Senate and in elsewhere around the country.
0: Well, so let's talk a little bit about that. So, you know, is it 2018? The Trump administration starts the child separation policy with the specific aim to, you know, tell people, like, you come here and we're going to take your kids away. And they did that. Fast forward to just recently with Ron DeSantis luring people onto aircraft, flying them out of Texas to Florida for 15 minutes and then flying on to Massachusetts. The folks that should be appalled by the inhumanity of such things in the Republican Party seem to be the ones who cheer most loudly for it, right? And I mean, I live here in Utah, a very conservative state, but also a state That has a long, and I think they would consider proud, history of accepting asylum seekers. And so is it just the process? And I believe it is a process, and I don't know that anyone's in control of it, but I believe it's on the march of a sort of dehumanization of the objectification of groups of individuals. They're not supposed to be here. This is their fault. If they hadn't come here, their kid would be with them today. Their kids don't belong here. What do you think it is?
2: I think it's a combination of otherism. So someone else is taking from me something that I now will be unable to pass on to my children. So there's that. You remember that whole refrain, you know, about, you know, how parents were feeling that America's changed so much. I can't create a better life for my kids like my parents Mm -hmm. had created for me. So you have that, some of that. You also have just the blatant racism of it all. You have any number of factors and issues that come out in conversations where people begin to give you little tells about what it is that's animating their frustration and their anger, and a lot of it has to do with how they see the country changing. And the reality of it is, if you buy into Donald Trump's vision of America, I'm just here to tell you that vision didn't even exist when they said it existed. The 1950s wasn't that great for white folks either. I mean, everybody's, oh, we want to go back to the white picket fences and the Cleaver family. And I'm like, you know, what about the white people who lived in Appalachia? What about the white people who lived in Mississippi? Well, they're still there. They're still there. They're still poor. They're still uneducated. But the difference is they're white. So, you know, there is always this belief that that'll be enough. (laughs) But the reality of it is people, they look at all of these things, Reed, and they start projecting an idealism about them that just isn't realistic. The country, as you just noted, Utah and many states have always been welcoming of immigrants, of migrants. We believed what Lady Liberty says standing there in that New York Harbor. We believe that, at least we did. And now we seem skeptical of it because somehow we think if one more person comes here, there'd be one less opportunity for my kid. Look, I understand, you know, great nations rise, great nations fall, all of that. At the end of the day, it's the people. And that's why I think our founders tried to form us that way. Probably the most difficult way because you're relying on people instead of institutions, right? And people can be fickle. But we've managed 246 years to kind of keep this engine moving despite the original center of slavery, despite Jim Crow, despite the treatment of women, despite the treatment of other minorities, and despite how we have now begun to create a level of classism in this country between the very wealthy and the poor. And so we've always managed to recognize, yeah, but you're still my American cousin. You're still my American brother. You're still my American sister. You're still part of this national family. And I think that's something that Trumpism strips away with the false pretense of patriotism and embracing the flag and I'm more American than you and it's hard.
0: I want to go back to the dehumanization thing. So several years ago, Ken Burns, who has a new documentary series out on America and the Holocaust, which I have not watched yet, but is supposed to be incredible, did a series on Vietnam. And he's got a there's one of his subjects, very compelling. He was a Marine rifleman from St. Louis. And he said, when I was in Vietnam, I killed one Vietnamese, but I killed X number. And he went through every. Asian epithet, racial term, everything. Because he said, You see, you turn them from a subject to an object, and that's how easy it is. It sticks with me even to this day, Michael. And you talked about the mothers. Stephen Miller, the uh, newfound Goebbels of the Trump world, his wife, when she was at the White House, they were encouraging her to go down to the border and see the cages with the kids. And she said, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to make me understand, because I believe she was pregnant at the time, as a mother, what it would be like. But just understand, even if I go down there, I'm not going to feel bad for those people. And, you know, Stuart likes to say, Stuart Stevens says leadership matters. And so let me talk about leadership for a second. And then I want to talk about the upcoming election. So, again, having known so many of these people, like Ted Cruz has been an asshole forever. Right. So, like, let's let's leave him out. But the many me's that are running around, so many of them are cynical. They know like all of this is BS, but they're now willing to go along with it. And so when you see these people in Washington or you run into them, how do you look them in the face? Now, first of all, you're about six foot four. So you're looking down on everybody anyway. But metaphorically, you're looking down on them, too. I assume maybe you're not. Maybe you're a better person than I am. But like, how do you face those people now?
2: It's a good question. I generally am polite because that's how my mama raised me. You know, I'll say hello. Sometimes I'll deliberately go up because you can always tell when they're trying to avoid you. You can always tell. And whenever if I ever notice you're trying to avoid me, trust me, that's when you get the bear hug. Make you as uncomfortable as I can. But you can always tell. They never talk about this stuff. It never comes up. You can't get to a point where you can look and go, so tell me again why you said Donald Trump did harmful, dreadful things on January 6th, but then three weeks later said something opposite or now say something opposite. They don't want to have that conversation. So they generally try to avoid you because they know. They know where they are. They know how this looks. Part of it is the, is the reinforcement mechanism that they try to be a part of where they have people around them who are reinforcing, that's all right, you're good. You know, Trump still likes you. You know, you're still part of the cool kids club or whatever. But I think Liz Cheney put it best. The stain is going to be too great. History is not going to look well on any of them. It isn't, but it's amazing how few of them care. They seem not to care. Look, I mean, I guess some of the Nazis and the fascists of the 1940s didn't really care until they had to, but then it was too late. And I suspect that'll be the case here. There is a group of them that believe that 24, they want to be on the right side. They want to make sure if Trump gets reelected, so they're playing their cards, they're holding their bets until then. But as I said to a couple of my friends who went in the administration, I said, you know, when you come out of this, there will be no life for you there's nothing for you to do. This is not going to end well. And sure enough, it has not been that case because a lot of them are either stuck working in that loop, in that circle of that very narrow circle, or they've gotten out of politics because there is no work for them, because no one's really going to hire. Because the problem is, yeah, my firm could hire you, but then when my clients know I've hired you, guess what? (laughs) I can't tell you the number of people I've talked to who, who tell me, yeah, you know, we have a lot of clients that you know we try to bring in some of the Trump people. They're like, no, they tried to kill the country. You can hire them, but you will no longer represent us. That's part of the reality. And then, then there is the work that we see from folks like you at Lincoln Project who clarify the moment, which I think there needs to be more of that. And the unfortunate thing is, I don't know anybody else who's able to get up to your game level,
0: (laughs) to be honest. Practice is imperfect, but we practice a lot.
2: But that's a big part of it too. It's almost like that biblical line about the plank in your eye, right? How do you clear that plank out of your eye so you can clearly see? And for all of those people in this town, that's what needs to happen. I put it more concretely, I call it, they need a political enema. You know, to clean it out.
0: Well, speaking of catharsis, so we're here seven weeks from Election Day. As you look down, you've been through more of these than I have. But I was telling somebody the other day, they said, you know, you've done a lot of this. I said, yeah, you know, the weird thing is, is like when the real active campaign starts, Michael, it's hot outside and the sun goes down late. And by Election Day, it's cold and windy outside. And when you look out your window at the campaign office, it's dark. So, you know, it's always weird in that sort of six, eight week window. But how do you see what's going to happen in the next few weeks and, and what worries you?
2: So what worries me, let's start with that, is that Americans keep their blinders on and fret over inflation and gas prices and all of that and lose sight of the fact that none of that will matter if you can't vote, if you cannot freely assemble, if you have a party that systematically strips away your rights. So that's what I'm afraid of, that as much as people say that they're not down with the politics, they actually are. They actually get into the politics and they get caught up in the politics and they lose sight of why the politics sometimes can be a danger to getting good results. And so I I worry about that. I worry about how the American people Decide to lean into this election, how they value their personal rights and freedoms against their neighbors, and whether they see those the same, or do they care that Republicans told us, we're, you know abortion is something that should be left to the states and now saying, "Oh, we're going to have a federal ban on abortion. you know the party of states' rights suddenly has become hardcore pro big government, and so. What does that mean to you when you hear it? How does that translate? So we'll see. The second thing that worries me that, is that Democrats don't have a damn clue how to do politics. They just don't know how to do the politics. And they spent the first 18 months of this term bickering over filibusters and chomping at Joe Manchin and the like, instead of clarifying again for the American people why they elected Joe Biden. Joe Biden was not elected to bring liberal policies to your front door. Joe Biden was not elected to do the Green New Deal. Joe Biden was not elected to forgive student debt. That's not why Joe Biden was elected. Joe Biden was elected to help us restore our faith in democracy and to protect us against the threat that stood in front of us. and. I've always thought of Joe Biden as a transitional president, you know, and then they start coming and talking about the next LBJ. I'm like, shut that down. That's not what this is about. It's not what the American people want. I'm not wrong in that because the polls prove that that's not what they wanted. Yeah. You've had some successes with, you know, infrastructure and got that a nice little legislative run there at the end, but it's fundamentally not what people elected you for the threat's still at the door. If I had been the president, my State of the Union address in January would not have been about anything other than Ukraine, democracy, and the United States, period. And I probably on the back end would have you know, weaved in something about interest rates and all of that to soothe some of the beasts out there that need to be soothed. But that's not what we needed to hear and still not what we need to hear. We need to reestablish our fundamental belief that our elections are secure. Our democracy works, although at times flawed. And at the end of the day, the threat is still at the door. Right. And democracy is messy by definition. Democracy has always been messy by its very definition. It absolutely has. And we act like it's some high tea time with people with their pinkies up in the air. No, democracy is about having the grit under your nails as you claw out protections for the very freedoms that you want the American people to have. That's what it's all about. While these people who are threatening that are sounding smooth and looking cool and all of that other stuff, but their threat still remains. And I think when I look at that in totality going into November, I still believe the Democrats have an advantage here. That going back to our earlier conversation about the makeup, the composite of the voter and who's actually turning out and will turn out and how they turn out, I think that there's still some opportunities there for the Democrats to hold the House and not only hold it, but pick up a few seats. A lot of people think I'm crazy, but that's okay. It's just that those externalities that you can't capture in polls that I hear and see in the focus groups that I watch leads me to believe that there's something there that's not getting captured accurately. And we'll see. It could all just, you know, dissipate and blow up by the time November comes. But right now, the Democrats have an advantage that I don't think anyone was going to give them six months ago.
0: Well, that's for sure. And, and the one thing, and Michael, you've seen this more up close than I have, is that Republican voters as you noted earlier, tend to maintain an intensity election over election. They're going to get out. They're going to vote. As I've spent the last now almost three years working with predominantly Democratic organizations, watching and talking to Democratic voters, every 16, 18 months, you got to make the case again. And there's something to be said for having to make your case. But I think it's a fundamentally different That's how the parties, I think, are fundamentally differently structured, even from the time we were active in Republican politics, which was always more hierarchical. And I think Democratic politics was always more sort of horizontal. It was a flatter deal. All right. Well, Michael, before we let you go, where can our listeners find you online?
2: So check me out. My podcast, the Michael Steele podcast, you can follow that on Twitter at Steele underscore podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Michael Steele check me out on MSNBC. I'm there a lot, so chances are you won't miss me. But these are very serious times, the work that you guys are doing at Lincoln Project, the work that I'm doing in a number of democracy groups. I chair, and I do wanna say this, if you are interested and wanna be a part of the electoral process, I chair the US Vote Foundation. Go to the website. It is a one-stop shop to, no matter where you are in the country, to access all the information, all the materials you need to figure out how to get your ballots to vote, how to register to vote. We've made it very easy. You can get it on your mobile, you can get it on your desktop. Take advantage of the resources and the tools to participate in this democracy. It doesn't work if you don't participate. That's the genius of what our founders did. Regardless of what you think of Jefferson and Madison and all of that, at the end of the day, they created something that they've given to us that belongs to us, which is why our most important document begins, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union. They knew it would require work. They knew it would require effort, but they also knew it would require the people for it to be successful. You cannot sit on your ass and think that Donald Trump just goes away like awakening from a nightmare. It doesn't work like that. And nor can you sit on your ass and think that your vote doesn't matter because it does. If you don't believe me, just talk to the people of Georgia. Amen to that. Well, listen, as
0: always, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Michael, I want to thank you for joining me today. I hope that you will come back soon. Everybody else, we'll talk to you later.
1: Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at LincolnProject.us, and if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit JoinTheUnion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Settmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Miami, May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, and Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.